0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our guest today actually fits sort of all three of those descriptions, but we'll get to that in a second. But our goal on these talks is the same as our goal at our conferences, the SALT Conference, which we're excited to resume in September of 2021 here in our home city of New York. But that's to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. We're very excited today to welcome Alex Rampell to SALT Talks. Alex is a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz, a leading venture capital firm, where he focuses on financial services. He has a long history of both founding and investing in leading financial services companies, uh, including currently serving on the board of Branch, Brightside, Descript, Divi, Earnin, Flyhomes, Loft, Mercury, Pierce Street, Point, Propel, Centalink, Super Evil Megacorp, my favorite, uh, TransferWise, and Very Good Security. Alex additionally led the firm's investments into Opendoor, Plaid, Quantopian, which was later acquired by Robinhood, and Rival, which was later acquired by Live Nation. Prior to joining Andreessen Horowitz, Alex co-founded multiple companies, including Affirm, uh, which is a leader in the buy now, pay later space uh, that he co-founded with Max Lebchen, Uh, Fraud Eliminator, which was acquired by McAfee in uh, 2006, Point Trial Pay, which was acquired by Visa in 2015, txn which was acquired by investnet in 2019 and yub which was acquired by coupons.com in 2013. Uh, alex holds a bachelor's degree in applied mathematics and computer science from harvard university and as i mentioned i think he's one of the foremost experts and the best investors in the world into the financial services sector with a focus on fintech hosting today's talk is jason zins who is a partner at skybridge capital who leads a lot of our fintech investments uh, that we're engaged in at skybridge uh, and he's also a contributor here on salt talks i think making his second or third appearance but we're excited to have jason joining us again here on salt talks jason go ahead and take it away
1: thanks john and thank you alex for uh, for joining us today excited to have a discussion around the future of fintech uh, and before we dive into some of the relevant topics today i want to start quickly with more of a, a personal question you have extensive experience as both a founder and operator, as well as more recently at Andreessen with um, with, with more of an investment role. Um, so touch on, if you can, some of the differences in skill sets required for, for those roles, as well as perhaps some of the, the similarities or the synergies between the two.
2: Sure. I mean, and ho- hopefully the synergies uh, are pronounced, but there are some people who are great investors and terrible entrepreneurs and vice versa- um, when our firm started, a lot of the logic behind getting founder CEOs as the investors is because they're going to have the most empathy. Like, you know, if you, if you take somebody who's a spreadsheet wizard and they say, hey, let's make C1 that sell higher, um, what does that actually mean? Like, at a company, how do you actually increase your gross margin by 5%? Or how do you launch a product if you're relying on a bank to okay the entire approval process? And, you know, one of the nice things about being an entrepreneur is that having been in the trenches and like, okay, when crap happens and everybody quits one day because they got higher offers for Facebook or, you know, all the kinds of things that are the ups and downs of being an entrepreneur, it's nice when you have that experience. So again, you have empathy for the entrepreneur. So when the, you can help them through that situation, because really we are, we are trying to not just provide capital, but actually... Expertise, know-how, and advice to the entrepreneurs that we work with, and it's kind of hard to do that if you haven't done the thing that they're doing right now. Um, but that having been said, um, like the most the most important thing from an investment perspective is just like find the best investments. Um, you know, find the best investments, and like the job of investing is at least in venture capital is finding, picking, and winning. And it's obviously very different than public equities because at public equities there's no winning. Like if you want to go invest in ticker symbol XYZ, you just go buy it. Whereas a lot of the best deals in venture capital tend to be uh, consensus right. So if you think about a two by two of you know, right versus wrong, consensus, non-consensus, you can't make money being wrong. You know, it doesn't matter if you're in public equities, private equities. If you're wrong, you're wrong. You lose all your money. Um, in public equities, you obviously want to be right. But if you're consensus right, well, that might already be priced in. You're not going to get a great return. So you want to be non-consensus right. Whereas a lot of the best deals in venture capital, they're almost known to be very, very interesting deals. Like, you know, Coinbase was known to be a very, very interesting deal when we did the series B of that one many, many years ago. We had to win that deal. So that was consensus. Everybody wanted to do it. We had to win it. And one of the ways that you win it is just from like, you know, you're, you're pitching yourself as the product. And again, it's helpful if one of the areas of expertise that you have is that you've actually done this job that this entrepreneur is working 20 hours a day doing. So, so I'd say like they're, they're very different, but um, there's definitely a lot of benefits in terms of just understanding the, the complexities, if you will, of uh, what end up going into the financial statements as the output. Um, if you've actually worked on the inputs, then it's it's a nice, uh, it, it gives you some degree of understanding of the struggle for one, but also it's like, wow, like maybe that isn't as easy as the guy is suggesting it might be because I've done that before and it's really complicated.
1: So having some empathy with with the founder across the table from you has been helpful in, in winning deals, which seems like it's an increasingly important part of venture investing today. I think one one part I just want to highlight is it's not just identifying the next great investment. it's 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 winning that investment and getting the company to actually agree to take your money. Is that something that has evolved and gotten more challenging or more apparent of late as more money has come into the space?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, once upon a time, there were only, I don't know, three venture firms. Right? I mean, if you go back far enough in time, there's probably zero venture firms, then one, then two, then three. But we're at a time right now where there's a lot more capital than there are great opportunities. I mean, just because think about today, 2021, the five biggest companies on earth are tech companies. You rewind 15 years, it was financial services companies. Before that, it was oil and gas companies. So like the, the, the big area of explosive growth is in technology, although that's been the case since mankind first invented fire. I mean, technology has always moved us forward. There's always interest in technology. It just comes in many different forms and sizes. So now it really is a, it's kind of a seller's market. I mean, the seller being the seller of, of shares and companies, n- namely entrepreneurs. So they have a lot of choices around who to work with. Um, at the same time, the the outcomes have gotten much bigger, which is why you know what is called venture capital today is, is a bigger asset class in many respects than it was in the past. Because you know once upon a time, if you sold your company for four hundred million dollars or five hundred million dollars, that was a big exit. And in that era, you'd have funds that were relatively small. I mean, now you have companies that, when they go public, they're worth tens of billions of dollars. And it, it's not just all um, bananas like 1999, even though some people say that, because there are real people using the internet. I mean, 4 billion people have smartphones. Um, Apple, Google, like these are tech companies that print cash. They're not just attracting eyeballs and hoping to monetize them later. So that's what's led, I mean, and you know, take 0% interest rates and everything else, add that to the mix, you have a lot of interest. That's uh, going after this sector, which has made it more competitive, which is great for entrepreneurship. I mean, it, it, there's probably no better time on earth to be an entrepreneur.
1: Well, we we uh, certainly have picked up on some of those dynamics, and some cases are are I guess guilty of of coming into to this space as new entrants. We've been a little more active in in the private markets, um, specifically on the fintech side, and and our view has been really post pandemic. Uh, that was really the catalyst that has now accelerated much of the disruption that we're seeing. And while there's been disruption going on for for many, many years now, financial services, unlike other sectors, has arguably been the most resistant to change. Um, You have an interesting, I I assume an interesting perspective on this because you've been in the space uh, for much, much longer. And so when you zoom out and you think of how FinTech has evolved over the years, but really more specifically pre and post pandemic, uh, what are your views on, on that?
2: Yeah, well, fintech, it's funny. Um, I gave a presentation a few years ago and I said, you know, what is fintech? And if you were to ask people 20 years ago, it would have been selling tech to fins. And I highlighted this by showing a map of the world and I highlighted Finland, but it's not fins with two ends like Finland. I mean, it really was selling technology to financial services firms. So FIS, Pfizer, t like these were a lot of the original financial services companies or f- fintech companies, right? They were software companies selling software to banks. Um, so like, you know, somebody like t uh, that was part of, I believe, Synovus, who was part of a bank. The bank said, hey, we need software to go actually issue credit cards and deal with like how much balance and whether or not we approve this transaction on the fly they built that internally, and then they ended up spinning that out into a separate company called Thesis. It was worth tens of billions of dollars before it itself got acquired. And that was the original kind of gen one of FinTech. And now FinTech is not, I mean, it's kind of like what you've seen happen with software. Like 20 years ago, you could have had a Lyft or an Uber, but when the amount of capital available was low and risk-taking was not extreme, and I mean that in a, in a negative way towards then and a positive way towards now, What would Lyft or Uber have become? They would have been taxi dispatch services. It's like software, very high margin software. They just sell that software to taxi cab companies, but the whole experience would have been terrible. And of course, taxis are still terrible today, but Uber and Lyft have really changed that industry. And if you think about where I'm going with this metaphor, it's all right, uh, we're gonna build a software company, a FinTech company that sells software to banks, but banks suck. Because if you want to go transfer money from, I don't know, dollars and send it to the UK, you have to go to the Bank of America branch and wait in line for two hours and then fill out all these forms. And then they screw it up and they get like a decimal place wrong. Then you have to go back and do it again. I mean, like this is the kind of stuff that you have to deal with with the bank. And just having software wouldn't make the entire experience better. What you've got to do, if you really believe in the software that you're building, is you vertically integrate. You say I'm going to be my own customer. I'm not going to. I'm not going to wait five years to sell Bank of America on something that they don't want and they don't really care because they have this like nice little oligopoly going. Like I'm going to crush Bank of America. So you know somebody like Chime today. I really admire. We're not an investor, so this is genuine admiration. Somebody like Chime, like they built a lot of software. And you know what would they have done ten or fifteen or twenty years ago in fintech 1.0? Well, they probably would have sold that software to banks and said, hey. Uh, kind of like what Digital Insight does or what Jack Henry does, like, you know, make software that banks buy. Again, Jack Henry is a very valuable company, but if you want to make the experience much better and say, hey, you can get paid two days early um, or no overdraft fees um, or really take, take advantage of the cost advantages of the internet, right? I mean, like, what has COVID done? It's like, why the hell would you go to a bank branch? It was kind of comical to me, like, when the government is just kind of like, flippantly shutting down X versus Y. And it's like, who knows? Like, why is the wine store open? But the gym that actually makes you healthy is closed. It's like, who the hell knows? It doesn't make any sense. But the thing that is a absolutely necessary thing that has to be open all the time is a bank. Really? Like, this is the 21st century. What do you do in a bank? Like, do you need to try on a mortgage? Like, it makes sense to buy clothes maybe offline, but even that's moving online. So I just think the bank branch is an anachronism. All of these banks are really tied into this very... Like I, I won't even call it 20th century. It's like 18th century notion of it's like physical presence is what gives you the right to go offer financial services to your local community. Like, yeah, that made sense in the 1800s where you stored your gold in a safe and then the bank guarded it with like guys with guns. That's not where the world is today. I mean, cash is going away. There's really no reason to go to a bank branch. And banks are really clinging on to this old-fashioned technology. And then there are other areas of financial services like take insurance, Like, do you really want to get sold insurance by an agent who like wants to talk to you on the phone if you're 30 years old? Like, no. Um, And this is one of the jokes that I make, which is if, if you're under 30, do you know what the least used app on your phone is? Well, it's called the phone app, right? It's like the one where you actually talk to people. So... There really is a generational divide, which is one of the other reasons why you have this massive uh, once-in-a-generation opportunity, which is, you know, I, I would say if you're under the age of 30 or 40, people just want to buy things in a different way. They don't want to talk to a salesperson. They just want to point-click purchase. And then on top of that, you have the geographical opportunity, which is, you know, take Nigeria, 200 million plus people. Almost all of them now have smartphones. Like a smartphone's 40 bucks. Uh, that is now a bank. So, A lot of people that were skipped over for getting offered financial services, whether it's investments or interest-bearing accounts or just digital money. So, you know, if, if you live in a country with a massively inflationary currency and you want to go swap it to dollars, wouldn't it be great if you could do that online? You don't have to go to a branch, you don't have to go like wait in line, you don't have to get robbed while you do that. Like these are all things that technology is moving forward. So I mean, I, I think there are trillions of dollars of market cap in what I would actually more broadly define as uh, fire. It's financial services, insurance, and real estate. Like all of those different industries are going to be upended by the internet. They haven't been historically, but uh, the, the the internet's coming for you. Would be my message for most most uh, bank and finance executives. We we,
1: we certainly agree with that. Um, you know, you've you've absolutely seen uh, post pandemic. Uh, really a, a massive decline in, in people going into brick and mortar banks, moving to manage their finances online. Chime is a great example. We, we, we happen to be an investor in Chime. We're very excited to see where that company goes. It, it almost seems like Chime and the other big fintechs are, are finally starting to, to sort of bully some of the big banks and the incumbents into submission. I think just this week, a few of the, um, the, the bigger uh, banks announced that they'll be stopping overdraft or account balance fees. Right. So um, perhaps you're starting to see that continue. Uh, and that's a concept I want to come back to in, in a moment as far as how uh, the banks are, are responding. But um, to be blunt, do you, do you think fintech is going to do to the big banks and financial services what Amazon did to retail over the years?
2: Well, it's complicated. So, I mean, I, I don't want to write off the banks altogether. And a lot of what they have going for them is, I mean, they have higher operating costs in terms of the bank branches. They have five thousand people working in compliance when they could just write their own software if they had competent software engineers and then you know do it at a fraction of the cost. But what is what does J.P. Morgan have as an example? Well, J.P. Morgan has over a trillion dollars of retail deposits. And how can any fintech company Uh, that is not a chartered bank uh, have a lower cost of capital than JP Morgan, like they can't. So when you look at things like lending, it's like, okay, well, the the cost of maybe originating a loan or servicing a loan, all of these things will be cheaper for the financial services upstarts, the fintech guys. But the cost of capital is just massively, massively lower for the entrenched incumbents. Um, And part of that is just a regulatory thing which is like, why not make it very, very easy for every one of these FinTechs to become a bank? Um, because like, you, you can't be an eBay for money, if you will. Uh, if you aren't actually able to take deposits and use those deposits to fund your loans, to do that, you have to be a bank. So that's the big advantage that the banks have. The big disadvantage that the banks have is that they've got bad technology they have entrenched P&L lines, like you mentioned the overdraft thing. Like I think Bank of America made over a billion dollars last year on overdraft fees. So they've got a guy or a gal or somebody who's in charge of the P&L for overdraft. And it's like, right now it's a P, like why do you wanna turn that into an L? Um, and you take an, you take away enough of these things that are right now very big profit centers, like you've got no business and you have a cost structure that's very bloated as well. So, I mean, if, if you're running Bank of America or City or Chase or any of these, you should probably figure out a way within two years to completely exit branches, go digital only, offer digital service. And if you can do that very, very quickly and you're making most of your money on net interest margin, then you as a bank, I mean, this is where Walmart beats Amazon, right? Because the the, the challenge with Amazon versus Walmart is kind of twofold. One is that there's no way in hell Walmart's ever going to invent an Amazon web service. So like the optionality on product expansion for Walmart is basically nil. and they have this physical footprint, but the physical footprint for Walmart, I would argue is actually valuable. Like they don't, they're not renting like class A real estate at hundred bucks a square foot a year. Like they find these giant warehouses, they actually double as fulfillment centers. Like there's a lot of advantage there, but there's not like this, there's not an analog of this cost of capital piece that is the key input to net interest margin, which is where banks make a disproportionate amount of their money. So I don't think it's as black or white as that, but in terms of where Americans might have their primary financial relationship, like where does the direct deposit of payroll go, there's a higher and higher chance that that's going to go to a fintech player. And then there's also this chance that what you think of as a fintech player is completely different. And what I mean by that is more in this kind of embedded finance sense. So if I'm Lyft or Uber, you know what I should do to retain all of my drivers that currently have left me, and that's why it's hard to get a Lyft or an Uber right now? I should just give them free bank accounts. And that doesn't mean that I'm opening the bank of Uber or the bank of Lyft. I should find a way to white label an account, um, deposit money in there in real time, give them a card, because that's one of the ways that I retain them as a user. I get a, a percentage of all of their spend. That's what interchanges. That's how Chime makes all of their money. So you'll probably see more of these things. But then again, when it comes back to the most profitable mother load of, of, of banking, of, of you know net interest margin when, when times are good, um, it, it's, it's harder to see a clear path for how the fintechs really dominate that space without becoming uh, licensed banks.
1: No, absolutely. So it, it'll be a little more nuanced and, and it'll be interesting to see which fintechs go which route, as far as you know, lending certainly is, is an interesting one where balance sheet is helpful. I think you also identified some of the clear issues with the, the bank business models, which I'm sure inside of these big banks, they're well aware of as well, right? The cost structure that's eaten up by their real estate footprint, uh, the the PL that's driven by charging customers fees, which is a, a big reason why they're going to fintechs like Chime. Um do you think that there is enough? Goodwill uh, within, or, or or willpower, I should say, within the banks to innovate and get past uh, the inertia in their business structure, the bureaucracy, and the politics that goes on inside these banks. Or is it just going to be a slow bleed? And and you know, certainly some some may innovate, right? Like impossible to ever bet against Jamie Dimon at J.P. Morgan. Certainly Visa, which uh, which you've worked at, is, um, has been innovating through acquisitions and new products. Um, but broadly, do you think do you think that the big banks, the incumbents, uh, are going to be able to innovate in the ways that they need to?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a saying that I use a lot, um, which is the battle between every startup and incumbent is whether the startup gets distribution before the incumbent gets innovation. And I think it's it's true for everything, but it's particularly true here because to go get access to millions and millions of um, of customers, like to get them to switch from a direct deposit at Bank of America to this unknown company called Chime that loses money, like you know, would my grandmother who lived, th- you know, throughout the Great Depression, would which she put money in a bank like like Chime or a non bank like Chime, like probably not. So to win people over takes time, like that's the thing that people kind of underestimate. I mean, like which which I have a lot of experience. Like you asked about the entrepreneur experience, it's like wow, like it's really hard to acquire customers on the internet. It's not hard to give away money on the internet, but to go win over customers, get them to deposit their life savings with you, like that kind of stuff is very, very hard. Um, So, and it's not like this, this this is not like, you know, Blockbuster that's going to get run out of business by Netflix. It's like uh, JPM has many business lines, one of which is retail like if if retail suffers and loses five percent account volume but really only like the tiny accounts that kind of complain about overdraft fees and everything else it's like it's kind of a non-issue for them i mean it's an issue but it's not it's not existential whereas when people start buying an amazon like that is an existential problem for circuit city or comp usa or any one of the you know 100 uh, tombstones that now lie in the the internet graveyard or the killed by the internet graveyard so i i, I think it really um, I think it's a little bit more nuanced than that. Um, And, you know, the the big banks, to their credit, they are moving more towards this uh, digital-first embrace. But I, I gave a talk at a big bank maybe three years ago, and I had this whole thing where it's like I start off with this SAT analogy, which is, you know, Walmart is to Amazon as, you know, X, Y, Z bank that I was talking at is to what? And they're like, can you take that out? Because we, we have a person here who's in charge of expanding our branch network. And I was like, no, I'm not going to take it out because I don't think you should be expanding your branch network. It doesn't make any sense. Um, they're like, no, but like we actually, we saw that in places where we have more branches, we get more accounts. And it's like, you know, there, there's this thing called correlation and there's this thing called causation. I would make sure there's a causal relationship between the two before you, uh, before you go all in on this like correlation thing. So... I I think they'll they'll get with the program eventually. Again, it's not it's not an existential threat, but I could see like this, and and actually, like in in their defense as well, like they have to serve not two masters, but kind of two different age groups, if you will. Which is there are people who are seventy five who, if they're like, hey, if I have a problem with my bank account, I want to go into a branch and talk to a person, and they're like, no, no, you gotta. And by the way, who has all the money in America? It's not people that are fifteen, right? It's not people that are twenty. So there is this generational thing where like an older bank actually has to serve two different demographic groups, one of which is probably very, very comfortable going to bank branches. The other one is like, why the hell would I do that? So, and obviously if you're, if you're a new upstart, you're just like, you know, to hell with the people that are rich that have, you know, millions of dollars and are 75 and older, I'm just going to focus on people that I don't have to go build a physical presence for. But, you know, that, that having been said, I, I, I think, they all have apps. That's kind of proof in and of itself. It's not like they haven't gotten with the program, but they haven't gone all in on that as a strategy, whereas that is the all-in strategy for all the fintech guys.
0: And,
1: and it seems like, to, to pick up on a point you just mentioned, in, in many in many cases, the banks versus the fintechs are serving different demographics, different constituents. And it'll be interesting to see as, as that continues to play out and that expands and then they really start to play on a, each other's turf um, how, uh, how how they react. Hopefully, it's ultimately the consumer that that will benefit from from that competition. Um, Absolutely. I want to shift gears a little bit and pick up on a, a concept that, that you mentioned in, in one of your comments a moment ago, uh, this idea of embedded finance, um, which is an idea that you and, and your colleagues have, uh, at Andreessen Horowitz have been talking about for, for a number of years, um, sort of this notion that uh, all, all companies will be fintech companies, Can you explain at a high level uh, what what that concept means? And and you touched on an example already, but if if you could sort of hammer that point home, because I I do think it's a a very important trend that we're seeing.
2: Sure. So I'll I'll start with a little joke, which I like, which is uh, there, there are two pigs in a barn, and one of them says to the other one, like, this place is great. Everything's free. The food's free. It's heated. And then the caption underneath the little cartoon says, if you're not the customer, you're the product being sold. You see the pigs are about to become bacon. Um, And effectively, there are two ways of making money as a consumer company. You either sell a product or sell a transaction or sell a subscription to a consumer. So like Peloton, they're selling you a subscription. That's very, very clear. Or you are selling the consumer to an advertiser. So Facebook, you're the product. Uh, I mean, you are the customer of Facebook, but not really, not financially. You're not paying anything. You're being sold. The impression that's being offered to you is being sold to an advertiser. And those are kind of like it's option A or option B. We even ask people when they're pitching us, like, how are you going to make money? Is it a transactional business model or an advertising business model? Well, now there's a third one, which is this embedded finance thing, which is like if, if if you update that to Pig's Uh, little cartoon, it'd be like, no, um, the the barn is free, but they just want us to use their co-branded credit card and deposit all of our payroll into their bank account, and, and, and. So what's happening right now is that if you look at B2B SaaS, as an example, like look at a company like MindBody, which basically does like, you know, CRM and booking services for spas and and beauty salons and whatnot. Um, They made money by selling software. But actually, it's like now they'll do credit card processing for you. Oh, wait, your spa needs money in advance of getting paid by all of these consumers that have bookings next week. We'll give you a loan. And that's embedded. And again, going back to the point that I made around like this battle between uh, distrib- distribution versus innovation here, Like the cool thing is if you build a software platform that already has all the distributions. so you're Uber, you already have all the drivers Um, it's very easy for you now. There are tools like what AWS did for rolling out servers. There are tools like I'm on the board of a company called Plaid. It makes it easy to read information from somebody's bank account. Um, Or there's a company called Marquetta that allows anybody to issue a card. So these are examples of embedded finance where any company can very, very easily offer financial services in a in an integrated way, not lead generation, not saying hey you want a loan click here and it goes to some third party website. It's like the loan is actually captive within the product. And you've seen the financial services companies do this first. Like you know, Square has a very low margin credit card processing business, um, but guess what? That gives them captive rights to that entire merchant base to do what's called um, you know a merchant cash advance business, an MCA business. Where they can say, okay, we have this thing called Square Capital. We're just going to take five percent uh, off the top, not two percent or not two point nine percent, but like until, we're going to give you a loan right now, and then we're going to get the next week of credit card payments as they come in, and that's how we're going to pay off the loan. We have better underwriting that way, but we're embedding this lending thing into our company. But that kind of makes sense for Square, see Kind of, I mean, Square just got a banking charter; they're they're getting an ILC, I should say. Um, but you know, what about companies like MindBody? Um, what about companies like toast, which is like square for restaurants, or like there's a company that that pitched us that does, um, it's like a operating system for body shops for your car that's effectively going, how are they going to make money? They're going to make money via embedded finance, uh, where there's a big space in vertical software called dental practice management. You go to a dentist, they have a software product. It's not Excel. They store all the pictures of your teeth. They, they get reminded of like when to call you for an appointment again. They bill your insurance company. All of this is part of a, it's called a DPM, Dental Practice Management Software product. Like it's kind of a small market. But actually, it's not once you think about the embedded lending opportunities, either to the patients or to the doctors, you think about the VIG on credit card payments that you're going to get, like these are massive, massive spaces. So the point is that almost every company, if they have a long lived relationship with the consumer or a business, has an ability to embed financial services monetization um, in a way that they control. And that begets two opportunities. One is it's the infrastructure layer, like that's why we bet on something like Plaid or why, you know, Marquetta might be interesting, or a lot of these things that allow anybody to add this financial services line um, or line item to their revenue lineup. And then the other is kind of just changing the way that you look at companies, which is like, oh, what is MindBody? That's a boring company. Why would whoever, Vista, why would they buy that? Um, Well, it's because there's so many additional revenue opportunities once you once you turbocharge them with financial services.
1: Wouldn't have thought of uh, such a big opportunity set in in the dental space, but uh, it reminds me that I do need to go to the dentist, so so thank you. But the infrastructure companies that you mentioned, like Plaid and Marquetta and Square and Stripe, are really the enablers of this embedded finance concept. Um, But ultimately, it's up to the companies themselves to really implement that and even to go so far as to base their business model around it. So where are where do you think we are in in that evolution? Is this just a buzzword that's being talked about in VC circles or fintechs that are popping up around it? Where are we in in you know corporate America, whether it's Fortune 500 uh, to to early stage startups?
2: Well, I think right now the charge is being led by companies that actually have a well. Number one, you have to have a close relationship with your client or customer. If it's somebody that you see once a year and you think, oh, that's going to be like. I'm Zynga, the game company. I'm gonna get people to use my bank. It's like, that's that's probably not the right relationship. But you know, if, if you're QuickBooks and you're like, wait a minute, like why don't I just offer my own insurance? Like I already know like how much money this small business makes, like how do I embed insurance in there? Like that makes a ton of sense. Um, and this is a top priority for a lot of the companies that already have a financial relationship. They just never had the tools. It's like, okay, I know I want to launch a website, but there's no AWS. Well, you know, I'm sure Intuit's had this idea for a long time, but now that the building blocks are available, they're able to actually do it. So I would expect companies like them to, to do this much more quickly. I think for ones where it's like, you know, dental practice management, um, like th- there's a company called Synchrony, uh, which is, it's one of the biggest players in the kind of installment payments place uh, space. Um, And they have one of the most profitable business lines is called care credit, where they do installment payments for elective medical procedures. um, And dental would be considered one of those as well. So things that aren't covered by insurance. So um, they have always been the, like they've relied on like just selling to doctor's offices for a very long time And that's how they've gotten their distribution. But, you know, one of the dangers to them, as an example, is that if you have the dental practice management software that says, hey, wait a minute, we should do this, right? Um, They're not going to, they don't even have to do it themselves. They're not like, I don't think that, um, you know, Henry Schein, the dental supplies company and their software product is going to go figure out balance sheet lending, but they can take some, they can bid out that space white label it and then get a big chunk of the economics. I mean, it's kind of like what you've seen with Shopify as well. Like how does Shopify make money? Well, Shopify makes money by they've just got recurring, they have a recurring billing model for their hundreds of thousands of small merchants, but they also make money on payments that they offer. So I think kind of V1 is always going to be like where there's a clear financial relationship. V2 is where there's like almost a clear business relationship, like dental practice manager, like I help you run your business, MindBody, I help you run your business. Uh, Service Titan is like an operating system for HVAC contractors. So uh, like it keeps track of your jobs, where you're going next, what your billings are, like all of this kind of stuff. You know, it's a multi-billion dollar company. It's still private. How can they make money? Well, they own this relationship. They run the HVAC contractors business. It's trivial for them to add lending and payments now that the tools are available. But the ones that are kind of further afield is it's like, should Apple offer a bank? Should Google offer a bank? It's like, uh, I don't know. Like if I'm Apple or Google, and I'm printing, you know, tens of billions of dollars a year of, of net income, I'm not sure if I want to mess around with this like low margin thing called financial services. Versus if I'm a SaaS company with a couple hundred million dollars of ARR, um, and it turns out that by getting two points of GM of my customers' GMV, I can double or triple that number. It's almost a no-brainer. Big tech
1: certainly seems to have enough of their own regulatory issues. I, I I don't know that they want to add on. Yeah, I mean, it's
2: like the only way that it could be worse is like, OK, I'm, I, I want to do my big tech thing and censor speech. And I want to be an oil company and I want to be a bank. That's the only way that you could potentially be run more afoul of, of government regulations. So I, I think that the big guys are going to tiptoe more slowly. They're going to be more of an enabler. So, you know, if you think about where the future goes in five or 10 years, will you still get solicitations to go sign up for a credit card in US postal mail? And I think absolutely not. Um, There's probably gonna be an app store for financial products and that's gonna sit on your phone. So just like there's the app store on my iPhone where I can go download whatever app I want. Well, I have my Apple wallet, like that should be not just adding stuff to my Apple wallet but it's like, oh, I wanna get a Capital One card I should be able to permission my contact information. Like, just like, you know, you go and install an app on your phone it says, do we have access? Can we have access to your photos? Can we have access to your contacts, your location? It's permission, right? And you as a consumer get to choose the permissions that you give the app. And one set of data that you have is like your social, where you live, your credit history, all of that. Like, you know, my vision for the future is that, and this is where I think the big tech guys are going to play a big, a, a disproportionate place as opposed to like trying to own the account is you're going to go to the Apple wallet or the Google wallet, and say, I want to add a new card to my wallet. And then uh, it's going to say, do you, do you permission your social and everything else to Capital One? And I'll say yes. And then boom, uh, I'll get decisioned on the spot. I'll either get the Capital One card or I won't. It gets provisioned to my wallet. There we go. And by the way, I could do the same thing with refinance. Um, you know, most of uh, companies like Lending Club, what do they do? They just go refinance credit card debt. Why can't I just add an auto-refinance partner in my Apple wallet? Doesn't mean that Apple's going to be in the refinance business. That's a terrible idea. But it what it does mean is that you're going to unbundle this idea of a product. Product is a credit card where I pay for things from the rate that I'm paying on my revolving credit line, which is, you know, happens on the back end. So, you know, Capital One can't stop me from paying off my entire 18% balance right away. Um, there are lots of people that are competing to get that business. And that will probably happen within these wallets as well. So I, I think that's probably the direction that big tech will go, which is they liked it. Like there's no better there's no better uh, area of the market to play in than being a platform. Um, and given that the way that you're gonna pay for things which is the ultimate daily active use product, it's, you know, it's a term that we often use a lot in venture capital. It's like, do you have a DAU product? And the only one that's really there in financial services is payments. I mean, maybe gawking at your stock market portfolio might be a daily active use product, but not really at the same level worldwide as paying for things. Um, so, you know, controlling that payment instrument is going to be important. That's increasingly going to be the phone. COVID also accelerated that. Like, like Apple Pay took off, Google Pay took off because, you know, places stopped accepting cash and people didn't want to pay with dirty credit cards anymore. So, boom, you've got that taking off. And they are the ultimate platforms for a new generation of, of um. Of companies, I think, and even for the incumbents, right? It's like, you know, how much money does Capital One send, spend, sending out postal mail to get people to go sign up? How much money do they spend on commercials from Samuel L. Jackson asking, "What's in your wallet?" Like, that's all going to get redirected, I think, to, to to mobile and being top of wallet on the digital wallet.
1: So it, this is a good a good shift into another topic I want to touch on, which which you've started to discuss um, as far as the future of payments, digital wallets. I listened to a a great podcast recently that that you appeared on uh, with Patrick O'Shaughnessy, the the host of Invest Like the Best, um, a a great FinTech uh, and and related podcast, um, perhaps just behind Salt Talks, of course, Um, but you did a great breakdown on Visa and the history of Visa, which I I found to be fascinating. Um, You started a company that was ultimately acquired by Visa, and so you spent some time there. Um, so you certainly have some some unique insight into the future of payments and and you've started to allude um, to where we're headed. How far away do you think we are to to fully integrating payments and wallets onto our our iPhones?
2: I think we're pretty close. Um, again, had it not been for Covid, Um, we'd be doing this not as a Zoom, but probably in-person and Zoom kind of, you'll still have in-person stuff, but Zooms are taking over for a lot of otherwise, you know, faraway meetings that would have to be done via planes and in-person. And I I think the same thing can be said, as I mentioned, for uh, digital wallets where it's really accelerated adoption, Um, but there's still like, go to a gas station. Most of them, you can't pay with Apple Pay. So there still is this this lagging technology thing in the US. The irony is that the the kind of more emerging the market, the more emerged it is in terms of this very, very topic. Like, you know, China's an emerging market from a nobody had credit cards there 30 years ago perspective. Like they've fully emerged. Like there's no such thing as cash anymore. It's like all of these QR code based payments. So. I, I That's think always bothered weird. me, But
1: by the way, we, uh, we always seem to be behind Europe, you mentioned China. Why is it that the US is always behind, whether it's QR codes, even the credit card chip? Is it just legacy systems?
2: Well, I think it's like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So it's one of these things, like if you're running on cash and cash, 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 and like nobody has cards, nobody has cards. And now it's like everybody gets a smartphone then it's like, oh, wow, like, what's the best thing available? And we're competing with nothing. Like, you go to the best available technology at the time. It's like, you know, there are no landlines in many countries, because it's like, you know, many countries didn't have landlines for dozens, if not a 100 years. And then when this mobile technology kind of came available, then like everybody just got a smartphone. Or even before a smartphone, they just got a cell phone. So I think you have a little element of that here, which is a lot more people here have credit cards. We're kind of overpenetrated relative to, I don't know, like how many people in Nigeria have a credit card? Like almost nobody. How many people in Indonesia have a credit card? Almost nobody. Uh, it's very expensive to mail out plastic and to get merchants to go buy these terminals and all these different things. Like what's the cheapest way of getting this out there? Well, everybody has a phone. Let's just use QR codes. Like QR codes aren't fundamentally better. There's nothing better about them. Um, if anything, they're a little bit slower. It's like I have to open up my phone and like, like the, the actual like NFC chip is probably the fastest. Like that's how Apple Pay works. Um, so I don't think we're necessarily behind. It's just like, we don't really have an incentive to like change because it's not that hard in this country. I mean, even if you're at the lower end of the income bracket, like you can go into Walmart and buy a prepaid Visa card. It's not that hard. So I think that's the main reason why, but um, but kind of linking that to, to your question of like where things go, like, I mean, I, I think it's inevitable. Like there's some questions that are if questions, there's some questions that are when questions. And this is just a when one, like, you know, will people be carrying around a dead cow wallet, which is what I call my my actual leather wallet that has like cash in it and credit cards and whatnot in 10 years, it's like, no, will that be eight years or five? Like, I, I don't know, I can't tell you exactly how many, but there's no question that all this stuff goes on your phone, it just makes a lot more sense. Um, it's gonna actually, I was joking with a colleague of mine, like, you know, what happens to like stickups and robberies, like, you know, what. What do I steal from you? If if all you have is your phone, right, and the phone will only unlock with like your face or your fingerprint, and you have no cash, like, like what's the point of robbing people anymore? Like maybe, maybe criminals will have to go to like you know night school and and study computer science and figure out how to blackmail people that way, as opposed to like you know sticking them up with a gun in San Francisco. So that's that's an I, interesting concept. I had I hadn't thought of of you know mobile banking, digital
1: wallets as a p- potential uh uh remedy for for crime but that,
2: well it's going to create an unemployment is the way of think it's gonna <laughs> it's gonna unemploy all the robbers it's it's really unfortunate so um for for them not for me so you know anyway i i feel very very confident that it's going to happen and it's already on its way to happening the question is really more interesting for me is like what then changes in the world when you have built that like who gets disrupted And that's why i mentioned things like net interest margin where like if you could uh if you could remove all friction, like a lot of banks just rely on friction. Like why do I have an account with like crappy Bank of America? Um this is actually true for years. It's like so I remember this um I wrote a check for somebody's bar mitzvah. They hadn't deposited it like 3 months later. I wanted to close my Bank of America account. I'm not going to do that and like have my check bounce. Like what kind of what kind of schmuck would do that? So I leave this account open. And then I've got my direct deposit from my employer going in there. And then my gym membership is withdrawing from there. So it's like kind of, there's too much friction for me to switch. But think about what happened with cell phones where I used to have Sprint and now I've had AT&T now for 20 years, or maybe not 20 years, but I don't know if you, if you remember this, but the uh, the US government said, there has to be number portability between the cell phone carriers. So if you wanna switch from Sprint to Verizon, uh, Sprint has to let you do that. They can't just hold on to your number. Whereas before, I don't know what it was, probably 2004, 2005, you couldn't do that. You were locked in with the carrier. And it actually incented uh, from the carrier's perspective, uh, more, more R&D and more CapEx. Like Verizon like had the best network, and they weren't really being rewarded for it because like Sprint Sprint had the worst network and the Sprint customers didn't wanna leave because it's like they'd have to lose their number. When that changed, you had a massive, massive migration. Like I was a Sprint customer that got the hell out of Sprint. Um, and this actually did happen. Like Sprint really suffered because they underinvested for a long time. The ones that actually overinvested and had like competent infrastructure where your call didn't you get dropped every 10 seconds, they got an influx of customers. Like you could argue the same thing will happen with banks Enabled by the mobile wallet, increasing or rather decreasing the friction from moving from one count from one account to another. Because if you were to ask people, it's like, hey, why don't you go switch your bank account? Like everybody's got their version of the bar mitzvah check and the gym payment and the Netflix membership and the blah blah. It's just like too complicated. Um, and if you could just like wave a wand and say, Oh, well, my phone will keep track of all of that and we'll just reroute it. Or like, oh, I'll keep my Bank of America account open. And then if there's a debit there, just push the $200 in there for the bar mitzvah gift. Like, great. Like, solves that problem, removes friction. And whenever you remove friction, it makes the customer experience so much better. Like, it actually increases competition. And by increasing competition, that's the way that customers actually pay less and get more.
1: And it seems like some of these infrastructure fintechs, like Plaid. Um, and others are, are removing frictions through, things like a direct deposit switch Plaid recently rolled out in, in right. beta. Um, it, it sounds like that innovation and the, the benefits to consumers are coming from the fintechs and not from the regulatory side. Where do you think regulation play, plays in here? Right? You mentioned uh, as it relates to, to telecom, um, how much is regulation hindering this innovation? And what can the, the the regulators and 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 government do better um, to enhance the experience for consumers?
2: I think this is a very easy one. I mean, um, I, I think almost all regulation gets it backwards, which is the only companies that can afford the 500 lawyers that can ensure compliance with regulatory X, Y, and Z, especially when Graham Leach-Bliley is 400 pages long and Dodd-Frank is five. Like, you can only afford that if you're rich, and you're rich if you're an incumbent. So these regulations always help the incumbents, always. And what you should want if you're a regulator is to say, okay, how am I gonna screw those fat cats at JP Morgan and Citi and Chase? Well, let me just get 10,000 companies out there that are competing with them. Now, how do I do that? we well, make it easier for them to get a bank charter. Or don't threaten them with jail time if they break some law that was passed in 1820. Like, you know, create a sandbox where it actually encourages, you know, I I hate to use this term innovation. What the hell does that mean? I mean, competition. It's like we want a thousand companies out there that are like Bank of America, but aren't charging overdraft fees. And if there are a thousand that are out there, they're like Bank of America that can get launched on almost no capital Um, that are FDIC insured and, you know, know, make sure that they don't blow people's money on like Lambos and whatnot. But like, that's the kind of regulation that's good. The kind of regulation that's bad is, you know, here are the 4,000 pages of documents that you have to fill out to become a bank and show your, you know, five-year projections and all this kind of stuff that just, you know, what you're doing is you're ensuring that no new banks will get created. And if you want the bank's To be more pro consumer, like that's going to happen naturally with competition. And that's what regulation should be focused on. But everything that's done, I mean, it drives me crazy because, like, if you look at GDPR in Europe, it's the most idiotic thing ever. It's like, who can afford, like, okay, we hate Facebook and we hate Google. I got it, Europeans, makes sense to me. But, like, what you're doing is you're ensuring that there will never be competition to them. Because of this whole, like, you know, Facebook can afford a thousand lawyers and like startup that can go compete with them. Now that they need 5,000 lawyers to compete as well, like there will be no such startup. Like I'm not going to invest in company in a company if they show up with their business plan. They say, okay, our first plan is to build no product, but hire 500 attorneys. Like, no, like nobody's going to do that. That's insane. So, you know, I, I think the regulation here is just very, very clear, which is like just eliminate it as much as possible for the upstarts. Um, that's unfair for the big banks. And actually, like, that that has largely happened with credit cards by accident. So there's part of Dodd-Frank called the Durbin Amendment, which basically set uh, interchange for debit cards at uh, one rate. Like, the Federal Reserve actually gets to set it if you're a big bank. So if you have over $10 billion of assets, it's five basis points plus, like, 21 or 22 cents. So that's very, very little. Like, you know, $100 transaction, you know, whatever Bank of America is making, like... I don't know, 20 20 something cents, right? Like it's very, very little money. Uh, If you're a startup and you're having your card issued from a bank like Sudden Bank or Celtic Bank that has under $10 billion of assets, well guess what? You're exempt from that and you're making maybe 1.6%. So like the reason why Chime and others, like everybody that's in FinTech land that's issued a card, a debit card to people that's making like hundreds of millions of dollars a year on this stuff, it's all because of this like, Random thing called the Durbin Amendment in Dodd Frank that was never intended for this. It was meant to, like, you know, um, it was because the merchants hated paying these high credit card interchange fees. It didn't change credit card interchange fees, it only changed debit card interchange fees, but it ended up helping startups. Like, without the Durban amendment it's like this random stroke of luck that enabled all of these companies like chime to, to thrive which is great so like that's another example of like how regulation helps although if you look at that from the merchant perspective merchants are like what the hell i don't want to pay 1.6% when money's just moving from this account to another account so it's it's more complicated but you know regulation can have a benefit for the ecosystem but i think by far the main form of regulation that that will help this ecosystem is getting rid of as of getting rid of as much of it as possible
1: I, uh, I, I certainly agree. I think it's an interesting example with the Durban Amendment and Shime, and um, sort of the unintended consequences of regulation, but in this case, uh, arguably a, a positive one, at least for, uh, for consumers. So we've, uh, we've run out of time, Alex. I appreciate uh, you spending some time with us today. It's been an interesting conversation. Hopefully, you'll come back and, uh, and see us again, whether it's via Zoom or at our, our, uh, our SALT conference. Uh, in New York in
0: September. Um, so with that, I'll turn it back over to John. And thank you everybody for tuning in to today's Salt Talk with Alex Rampell of Andreessen Horowitz. Just a reminder, if you missed any part of this talk or any of our previous Salt Talks, you can access them all on demand on our website at salt.org backslash talks or on our YouTube channel, which we would love for you to subscribe to. It's called Salt Tube. Uh, we're also on social media. Twitter is where we're most active at Salt Conference but we're also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook as well. And please spread the word about these SALT Talks. We at SkyBridge are enthusiastic investors in uh, the fintech space. And Alex, more than anyone, is an expert on everything that's taking place, the massive growth that's taking place in the fintech sector. So if you know somebody that's interested in the space or wants to, to learn more about it, definitely share this talk. But on behalf of Jason, the entire SALT team, this is John Darcy signing off from SALT Talks for today. We hope to see you back here again soon.